The Tennessee baseball season has come to a close, which means officially, officially, it's football time in Tennessee, if it ever wasn't. Welcome in to the Volunteer State. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside Adam Sparks of the Knoxville News Sentinel. John Adams is out chasing aliens this week. That is a true story. As long as he's not abducted by supernatural beings from another space, he'll be back with us on this podcast at some point. In the meantime, we're talking Vols football. Adam, you got a quizzical look on your face. Did you not know John was out alien hunting? Is he in New Mexico? Is that He's somewhere out here. west, Colorado, New Mexico border or something. I think he's trying to sell copies of his book out there, and he figures if you believe in aliens, maybe you're also the type of person who will buy a book written by John Adams. I don't okay, know. okay. Well, I mean, yeah. I went through Texas and New Mexico two vacations ago uh, back in June and uh, or early June, and John had given me some pointers because he goes out there Mm-hmm. Quite a bit. He did mention aliens, so he must have been like wanting to wanting to keep me from that community, maybe not influence them, maybe not get ahead of him. Maybe I have a book to sell. You never know. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe maybe he was just yeah, a competitive author. Did not want yeah. you out there hawking your product. Well, I mean, we've got a we got the uh, the Tennessee book on the 2022 season uh, with Joe Milton and Hendon Hooker on the cover, and maybe you, you never know. Um, I mean, Vols fans are coast to coast. You could you could find someone out there in Colorado or in Mexico to buy that book. I think. By the way, vacation number two and uh, was was later in June. I guess that was what last week or whatever. Um, I was in Alaska. My uh, the wife and I went on a cruise to Alaska, uh, and just to tie this up with Tennessee fans everywhere. Um, it, my I've mentioned on the pod before. My my wife is a is a diehard Vols fan and so she wore her Tennessee stuff on the cruise and throughout Alaska this was during the uh, College World Series so she's watching it on a phone on a cruise ship saw a few people on the cruise uh, that looked like to me they had uh, Tennessee garb on and a couple times my wife said hey go Vols which is what she does when she interacts with those people the people that are listening to this pod I suppose and they were Texas fans so they kind of have an inquisitive look. And by the way, this was not her fault. There were a few people on our cruise that had like bleached out Texas stuff. It was not burnt orange. Maybe they got it at the dollar store. I'm not sure. But these are some problems when Texas gets into the conference is that you're going to see a T. And if it's if it's a cheap version of the Texas Longhorns, it's going to it's going to be a, a, a lighter orange. And you're going to think it's Tennessee and it's not as Texas. And that was their fault. That was not that was not our fault. By the way, the schools I saw on uh, there's a lot of team stuff people wore on this Alaskan cruise. There was some Tennessee stuff. We actually did see a couple of legitimate Tennessee fans. Saw some Oklahoma fans. Told them, "Hey, you know, welcome to the SEC." And they said, "Well, we're softball fans." And oh, so they're okay, flying well, eye. Yeah. Said, "Well, y'all hang on to that. You know, I don't. It, it may be a little harder football when you get in. So know know where you're at." Um, there were some Texas fans I mentioned, um, and there are quite a number of Central Florida UCF fans. Did hmm. not get to talk to them. I thought maybe I was on like the Hypel Appreciation Cruise or something. A lot of UCF, a lot of Oklahoma, um, and then some Tennessee. Um, we should have all gotten together in like a group until, you know, Josh Hypel stories, but never, never quite got to that. Maybe you could round up a few Utah State fans as well. He moonlighted as a, the offensive coordinator out there. Briefly. No Mizzou. I didn't see any Mizzou's, so we only get part of part of Hopples. 
How much do you think the uh, the UT versus UT thing is going to rile up members of those respective fan bases? Like, it's not just the Vol side, right? But Longhorns fans. How much, you know, when they see in their local newspaper a, a wire story about the Tennessee or Texas or, or, you know, you were mentioning Texas and you get UT in there and everybody's getting... How much do you think that's just going to needle those two fan bases? The, well, no. Fight for the real UT. First off, it'll be a frustration to me because I grew up in the state and I always said UT. I never said, you know, hey, Tennessee plays Alabama Saturday because Tennessee is the state that I live in. So you, you say UT. Um, and so now I'm going to have to be more cognizant of saying, knowing that UT can be two different schools. Um, and in Texas, you say UT and there's not a thought that could, that could ever mean Tennessee. I think it's going to be actually bad on the front end because I've always taken that Texas and, and again, vacation earlier this month, I spent uh, like a week in Texas. Um, there's a pretty good respect historically between Texas and Tennessee. And I know when they get in the conference, we'll talk about this, all the background of, you know, the volunteers going down and helping Texas, Texas become a state and the Mexican war and all that. Um, there's always been a historical link between the two and therefore respect. Um, when, when Texas gets into the conference, I think some Tennessee fans are going to be more of, you know, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for us kind of take. And so that respect is going to turn into, you know, you know, who's your daddy, Davy Crockett's your daddy kind of mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so these two States that really respect each other and sort of have a kinship, I think it'll go a little sour early on because they'll want to claim, uh, you know, want to claim superiority over the other. Well, we're going to play a little fact and fiction, uh, fact or fiction on the, on the podcast today. And, and this conversation has made me add a new one to the list. So we'll get to my, my prearranged list here in a moment. And these are going to be scenarios. I'm going to throw out at Adam, you know, fact or fiction. Will this happen for Tennessee football in the 2023 season? But, but this, conversation has sparked one with the the incomers in Oklahoma and Texas. Fact or fiction, Tennessee will see Texas as more of a rival than Oklahoma when those two schools are in the SEC. And now let me make the case for each. We, we've kind of made the case for Texas, the UT versus UT. And Texas is sort of that school that a lot of fan bases love to hate. Um, some also might say Tennessee fans fall into that category. If you're not a Tennessee fan, it seems like the false fans really, really irk other fan bases. Uh, the Oklahoma side of things, I guess, would be you know, Josh Heupel played there, coached there under Bob Stoops, then was fired. And is there any sort of drama rivalry with Heupel now being on the other side of things? So fact or fiction, Texas would be the bigger rival for Tennessee of the two. Uh, fact, Texas will be the bigger rival. It'll be recognized more by fans. Uh, yeah, the only the only rivalry there is Josh Heupel. And I don't think you're going to to him personally, Oklahoma will be much bigger. Uh, but to Tennessee fans. Um, I think Tennessee fans always have more of a wider historical perspective. And if you ask Tennessee fans any time in the last several decades between those schools, which one would mean more, it would it would be Texas. And the fact that the coach now is Josh Heupel, I don't think that's going to make uh, that much of a difference. The only thing that would change that a little bit maybe 
is if there was some real evidence that Oklahoma could come and steal away Josh Heupel. Um, and it, it would be, it would be really weird circumstances to, to, to lead to that. Cause you would want to beat Oklahoma then, uh, to remind Josh Heupel he's in the right, he's at the right school. Uh, but now, now I think, uh, every Tennessee fan that I talk to, um, you know, they're looking forward to Texas coming here, going to Texas and all that. And, and a little of that with Oklahoma, but it, in fact, Texas will be the bigger rival. And I think Oklahoma has earned some respect over what they've done throughout the history of their program. They're one of the most blue-blooded programs in college football. They've, um, you know, they've dominated the Big 12 really like the last 15 years. And Texas falls into that category of often overhyped teams, um, which, again, I think the fact that Oklahoma has earned a little more respect with what they've done on the field more times than not probably maybe tamps down that rivalry aspect of it. You don't want to lose to the the team that is frequently overhyped, which is which is Texas. All right, let's get into the next factor fiction. Uh, Joe Milton, we've had some coverage in, in Knox News in recent days about how he lit it up at the Manning Passing Academy. Of course he did. Joe Milton was was born for skills competitions. And as I wrote recently, while I'm not surprised that he did great at at the Manning camp, and certainly it's not a bad thing. I don't really know that it means anything for the season because we've always known Joe Milton has had a, a wealth of physical tools. It's more about getting over those yips he had earlier in his career, putting it all together. He was able to, to, to do that in the Orange Bowl against Clemson, and now he heads into this season as QB1 for Tennessee. So fact or fiction, Joe Milton will throw for more yards this season than Hinnon Hooker did last year. Hinnon Hooker for, threw for 3,135 last year. Now, the theory here, if you want to support Milton, is Hooker had that unfortunate knee injury that sidelined him the last two games of the season. So, fact or fiction, Milton will sur- surpass that passing total of 31-35. I think a case, a pretty good case, could be made either way, but I'm going to say fiction. I think uh, Joe Milton uh, ends up below that mark. Um, I know we'll get this to this in, a, in, a, in another question, but I think Joe Milton does not play 13 complete games. So, I, you know, I, I think he's going to be injured somewhere. I think he's going to be limited in his attempts somewhere. But I look at the evidence of, of how he has played when he has played. If if you play 13 games, you're going to have to average 241 a game to reach Hinden Hooker's mark. If you play 11 games, which is what Hinden did last year, you got to throw for 285. Well, if you look at Joe Milton's starts, uh, year before last, his first season, his first season uh, Bowling Green, he threw for 139. Vanderbilt last season, he threw for 147. Clemson, Clemson, we think of, hey, it was a phenomenal performance. He was the MVP. He threw for 251 yards. So I think now I, I don't think Joe Milton's going to be a bust in that way. I I think Joe Milton's going to have some games where he throws for you know 350 or whatever. But I th- I think he could also have some games where he throws for you know 160. Um, and sometimes they'll just they'll just run the ball. Sometimes they'll win in blowouts, and he won't have the yardage to pile up in that game. Um, I could see him getting to 3,000. Um, you know, Hinden Hooker had 29.45 in his in his first season two years ago, and that was in 11 starts. Also, I, I could see Joe Milton's numbers looking more like Hinden Hooker's Hinden Hooker's first year rather than his second, which would 
um, be closer to 3,000, but certainly not 3,135 like Hendon had last year. So, so fiction, he won't reach Hendon's numbers. This is the one I probably debated about maybe the most of any of them we'll get to on my list. Like at, at initial reaction, you think it's got to be fiction, right? I mean, Hendon Hooker had phenomenal season, one of the best single seasons in Tennessee history, was being talked about for much of the year as uh, you know, Heisman hopeful, wound up um, finishing, uh, was he? was he in the voting adam i quickly forget is he fourth i only remember he was second on my ballot <laughs> yeah he was second on my ballot too uh, uh he, let's see the top uh, he was he was fifth he was fifth four. fifth because the top four win that's yeah. right he was fifth yeah because the big controversy was he wasn't a finalist that's that's right stetson bennett uh, was was fourth that's right but, yeah so initially my reaction was inclined to go with you with with fiction I still was on the fence about it, but I'm going to tip toward fact. Just historically, Josh Heupel's quarterbacks, you mentioned what Joe Milton would need to average 241 uh, and some change per game. Historically, quarterbacks have done that, going back to Drew Locke at Missouri when Heupel was the offensive coordinator, Dylan Gabriel at UCF, Hendon Hooker last year at Tennessee. So I'm going to I'm going to play the averages there and say uh, Joe Milton will will just surpass that of course to have that happen he'll need to stay healthy all season and and keep hold of the starting job all year as as well, uh, well okay well, not- and, and and just to support your take uh i mean we saw at the manning passing academy he threw it 80 yards in the air joe milton True. did so if he throws it 40 times 80 yards a time that's 3200 yards so we're really only talking about 40 passes you know, everybody loves seeing those guys throw it 70, 80 yards in the air. Here's the thing. To get a receiver 80 yards downfield to be able to throw that pass in a game, I mean, your, your offensive line is going to have to provide like seven, eight seconds of, of pass protection. Yeah. That's uh, that's the one thing that nobody really mentions about those passing camps is, uh, yeah, all, all this is irrelevant if, if uh, your quarterback doesn't have eight seconds to stand back there in, in the pocket and wait for a wide receiver to get 60 yards downfield before he puts it in the air. Yeah, I think people don't put together how much difference there is between three seconds and seven seconds. Uh, we're so used to saying, eh, what's the difference? You know, a few extra seconds. It's, even when when teams throw Hail Marys against prevent defenses and, you know, a three-man rush, you often see the quarterback having to move around to buy a couple of seconds to throw it. So, yeah, I don't think he's going to throw it 80 yards too many times. And, and if he is, it probably means Tennessee's losing at the end of the games and yes. he's throwing Hail Mary. So Tennessee fans may not wish to see him throw it 80 yards too many times this season. Sticking with the passing game, Adam, uh, you know, Jalen Hyatt is uh, is a big piece to replace this year, but Tennessee had to play without him in, in the Orange Bowl and everything looked A-OK with some of those young receivers stepping up. Now there will be a veteran back, a couple veterans back in the mix this year with Brew McCoy and Ramel Keaton. Brew McCoy is the leading returning receiver. So fact or fiction, someone other than Brew McCoy will lead Tennessee in receiving yards. Do you want the known commodity or are you taking the field? Um, fact, somebody other than Brew McCoy will lead in receiving yards. Uh, yeah, I, it's the easiest way to say this. I'll take the field because there's, there's other good options. Um, Last year, Jalen Hyatt was in the slot. He he had by far the most yards on the team. Um, Squirrel White will be in that spot this year. Dante Thornton, the Oregon transfer, could be in that spot. 
Those are both big play threats. Um, Joe Milton actually has the best rapport with Ramel Keaton. Um, he, he, he's thrown to him probably more than any of those guys uh, as, as a two last year in practice. Um, him and Ramel Keaton have a really good off-the-field friendship and rapport. So uh, Ramel Keaton could get the ball thrown to him more than he would have maybe when Hendon Hooker was out there. Ramel Keaton produced pretty well with Hendon Hooker out there. I, I think of like uh, last year, early in the season, when like in the pit game, uh, Cedric Tillman got targeted like 21, 22 times by Hendon Hooker because that was his guy. He was, he was looking there. And so I think Joe Milton will look at Ramel Keaton in that way a little more. Um, Brew McCoy, I think also may miss a game or two cause he's injured. So if you add all that together, I could see somebody else leading in uh, receiving yards other than Brew McCoy. And by the way, the, the evidence of this too, is you look at the orange bowl, all those guys played, uh, well, Thornton didn't cause he wasn't here yet, but, uh, receiving yards in the orange bowl, squirrel white was number one, Ramel Keaton was two, Brew McCoy was three. Um, not sitting necessarily that's how it'll end up, but I think Brew has a better chance of finishing second or third than first. Yeah, I like your idea there. I don't know who it'll be, but I would I would go with you and and take my chances on on the field um, if it's just one guy, Brew McCoy, versus someone from that that pack edging him out in receiving yards. Uh, let's go to the defensive side of the ball. Byron Young was was a big piece last year in, in Tennessee's defense, particularly in the win against LSU. He was excellent, had two and a half sacks in that game, put a lot of pressure on, on the quarterback in the bowl game against Clemson as well. Finished with seven sacks last season. It was for the, the most for a Tennessee player uh, since Daryl Taylor in 2019. So factor fiction, Tennessee will have a player match or exceed the seven sack total this season. Uh, fiction, um, because I think the sacks are going to be spread out more this season. Um, your your sacks, a lot of your sacks will come from that Leo position. With the, it's essentially their their weak side edge rusher, defensive end. That's what Bauer Young played, um, and at that position is going to be their weakest on the front line. Uh, it's going to be Roman Harrison or Joshua Josephs or James Pierce, maybe the freshman Caleb Herring, and so you're going to have sort of a committee of guys playing that position. So I think the sacks will be divided up between those guys. And, and so I, I also think the team sacks, the team sacks may be higher, but they'll be spread out with more guys because without that dominant edge rusher, I, I think the sacks are going to come more from scheme than individual talent. And, you know, I, I could see Aaron Beasley leading in sacks, um, but that's going to be more, um, schemed blitzes than it is Aaron Beasley just beating somebody. And also he's coming from the linebacker position. So uh, fiction, nobody's going to get seven sacks this year, even if the team sacks are higher. I agree. I'll, I'll take, I'll take fiction. I think, uh, you know, as we look at key losses from last season, of course, Hinn and Hooker, Jalen Hyatt, Darnell Wright come to mind. I, I think Byron Young is one that sort of flies under the radar a little bit. I think Tennessee's really going to miss him. I mean, he had 23 and a half TFLs the past two seasons. And as we know, the back end of Tennessee's defense was its weakness last year. And thanks to Byron Young and, and some others, but to a large extent, Byron Young, um, Tennessee got enough pressure on the quarterback in some games to help cover that up in the back end. I, I really think they're going to miss him this year. And even some of those sacks last year that were schemed by Beasley in the bowl game, a little by Jeremy Banks early in the year, some corner blitzes, um, those were made possible because there had to be a double team on Bauer Young because Bingo. that back 
had to keep his eye on Byron Young. And going into next season, nobody's going to look at those young defensive ends I just named and think, well, we got to, we got to, we got to make sure two guys are over there. They're not. So it's, it's just going to be more difficult. All right. Big picture one here. We know Tennessee's at no shortage of, of rivals and those games are circled on the calendar every year, but, uh, going to take a, a little bit of a different approach here and say fact or fiction the most important game on Tennessee's schedule will be October 14th at home against Texas A&M fiction and I'll say I would have had the opposite answer if you'd asked me this maybe a couple of months ago um, I was looking through the schedule just starting at the beginning and running it through chronologically and trying to trying to figure this one out and I, I can't get past the Florida game that, that that to me is a um, that's a fork in the road game. The season can go really well if you win in the swamp. And it looks like you are at the level of the previous year. Because if you beat Florida in the swamp, you say, okay, this is another really, really good team, just like last year was. Suddenly 9, 10, 11 wins becomes possible if you can win in the swamp. Um, and if uh, you lose that game, then you say, eh, you know, this this is going to be a definitely a step back. We don't know how big, but it's going to be a step back, maybe to eight wins, maybe to seven wins. Um, you know, it, it's, as as seasons go, you can have a big game, and after that game, then another game becomes your your big one. Which I think Texas A and M would be on that list. If you beat Florida, suddenly A and M is the game that you you need to make sure you win. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I just can't get past, past the Florida game because it's in the swamp and because you need to win that one to say that this season could be like last season. So fiction, a and is not the biggest game Florida is. I'm nearly on board with you. I, 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 I'm almost there. Florida's my number two, so it's interesting you went in that direction. I, I didn't know if you'd go with Georgia at home or you know Alabama again or something totally different uh, or go with A&M, but it's interesting you went with Florida because that that was one that tempted me for all the reasons you just said. And, and you know, you look at this long term, Tennessee, Florida are probably not going to play each other annually. It's probably going to go to every other year at some point, although Florida is still on the schedule for 2024 as divisions go away. Uh, we, we believe that Florida will not be retained in the SEC structure of rivals. For, for Tennessee, so it'll go to every other year. And and the last time Tennessee has beat Florida in back-to-back years was 2003-2004. So this is a, a real chance to land one on the chin of the Gators and Billy Napier's uh, program, which is kind of struggling to ascend. So agree agree with everything there. I just think, I think Texas A&M is going to be much, much better than they were last year. And and so I, I guess I look at it more as, Florida on the road, I think, could be easier to beat than A&M even at home. So I give I lean toward A&M, but I was really tempted by to go with Florida. It, and maybe this is almost like a visceral uh, thought, a visceral response to Florida. But it's for a lot of people listening have been to the swamp before. But if you haven't, it's one of the few stadiums in the country where you can look at the two teams on paper and make your pick. You can say, hey, the, this team's going to win by seven. And then you go down there and you sit in that place and you suddenly say, ah, never mind uh, the Florida by three. It has that sort of, uh, you know, you don't get that at Alabama. Alabama's a big, nice stadium and loud fans and all that. 
you don't get so much of a sense of the atmosphere, how intimidating it is that you would change your pick of what it was on paper. You would do that at Florida and you feel that of what the, the team is on the field. You'd say, Hey, I, I could see how, even though Tennessee is better than Florida, I could see how Tennessee could get swallowed up by this humidity and this crowd and this atmosphere. And, and the place just feels like it's kind of coming in on you. Um, that, that, that's why I, you know, un, until I see Tennessee go down there and prove itself winning in the swamp, it's going to be hard for, for my eyes to go further down the schedule. Yeah. And if, and if Florida would happen to beat Utah on the road in week one, which they beat Utah at home last year, I seen it. What, what's in Florida's quarterback room. I have a hard time seeing them beating Utah on the road in the opener, but if they were to happen to do that and they're two and O going against, you know, hosting Tennessee, in week three in the swamp, I'm absolutely with you. Yeah, that's it's the most important game on the schedule. So good debate on that one. Uh, let's see what we have here with the uh, the five-star freshman quarterback, Nico Iamaliava. Fact or fiction, Nico will start at least one game this season. Um, fact. Um, I, actually, I actually had the hardest time probably of all the, the questions on this one. Um, because I think there's a chance that Joe Milton may be healthy enough to start every game, but not healthy enough to finish. Um, you know, but if you look at, I mean, there's two scenarios where Nico uh, starts a game. Uh, number one, Joe Milton's banged up. Um, that could happen. Hinton Hooker was, uh, was injured this past year. The year before that, Milton was injured, and so they had to change starters. So if you look at the last two years, uh, the chances are, your starter, regardless of who it is, is going to be injured enough to be taken out. Um, so there's there's that chance they could put Nico on the field. Also, and I think this is less likely, but Tennessee fans, are, you know, have to accept this at some point that, um, or could have to accept this that if the team were to struggle, especially in the middle of the year, and if Joe Milton were to struggle, there could could come a time late in the season where. They say, hey, you know, let's let's give Nico a shot. This team's only going to go, you know, seven and five or whatever. Um, he's the future. Give him a chance. I don't think that's going to happen. But if you look at a game like uh, UConn, November 4th, um, after a long stretch of SEC games, um, if Joe Milton's either banged up or if he's struggling and the team's lost a few that they should have otherwise won, you can see Nico, him putting Nico out there, Josh Hoplin saying, uh, you know, you start and let's see how you do against an inferior opponent, and then we'll move on from there. So uh, I think, I think fact, I think there's a likelihood that Nico will start at least one game. Yeah, I'll agree with you. I'll take fact as well, and I don't know whether it'll be due to poor performance from Joe Milton at some point in the season that allows Nico to get a start or due to injury. I just think – you know, you got two avenues there for Nico to get a start. So combine them. I'll 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 take the the averages there and say uh, Joe Milton does not go wire to wire as the starter. Although he may begin and end the season as the starter, I will agree with you. Nico will start at least one game somewhere in between. Let's go to the run game. Jalen Wright or Jabari Small, or maybe both. Heck, if you want both of them, you can take both of them. But at least one will rush for. A thousand yards or more this season, fact or fiction? Uh, fiction. Um, Jabari Small won't be healthy enough. No, nothing against him. He actually runs very hard, which is part of the reason he is injured uh, routinely. 
But Jabari Small, I think, will be too injured uh, to get to 1,000 yards. He had 800 um, in 2021, and he was out a couple of games that year. Um, he missed some time this past year. Uh, his shoulder injury that he's dealt with, that he's played through, I don't think goes away. I think it's just something he has to, he has to play with. And uh, the fact that they have other backs, I think that will take him out of the game enough. So, uh, you know, Jabari Small will have 600, 700, 800 yards, but I don't think he gets to it. <clears throat> I don't think he gets to 1,000. Jalen Wright had 875 last year, so he got close. But, you know, that took Tennessee playing 13 games and him being pretty healthy. Um, I think he'll probably hit that mark again. I could see both those guys getting between the 600 and 900 yards, but I think they both fall short of 1,000. I think the secretly it's – now, Tennessee would like to have a thousand yard rusher, but I think there's a little part of this coaching staff, too, that enjoys the fact that they can have a couple of guys rush for 800 and their quarterback also, you know, break some rushing records like Hendon Hooker did. And, you know, before the playoff, because the other teams played, you know, 15 games or whatever, before the playoff, Tennessee led the country in rushing touchdowns. Yet they're thought of as a passing offense. I think there's there's just some part of this team that just this coaching staff that just loves the fact that they don't have a bell cow yet they can put up rushing numbers like that. I don't feel much conviction in this one, but I'm going to say fact barely. Ooh. Uh, yeah, I'll say one of them gets to a thousand, not a which one. No, you got to pick one. Which one? Oh boy, uh, I'll go Jalen Wright. He, he was he was the leading rusher last year, and you mentioned Jabari Small. You know, kind of banged up that type of thing. So I'll, I'll go with Jalen Wright. And I tell you, this is not a great reason for this, but I can't get the image of my mind of out, out of my mind of Ish Witter in 2017 at Missouri, when Josh Heupel was the offensive coordinator, Ish Witter topped a thousand yards rushing and Tennessee fans probably remember that name because he had over 200 yards rushing in a route uh, of the Vols in what uh, was Butch Jones's, last hurrah, Butch couldn't find a way to stop Ish, and that was it for Butch. But the thing about Ish Witter was, incredibly likable guy, hard worker, never thought of Ish Witter as, uh, you know, a great headline SEC running back. Ish's style was kind of to run straight forward for four yards, hit somebody in the chest, but he wasn't a real big, powerful guy, but run into somebody and fall forward for another yard. And somehow he got to a thousand yards in Josh Heupel's offense. So I think that that a Tennessee running back is just waiting, you know, is, is right on the cusp of going for a thousand yards. If Ish Witter can do it, Jalen Wright can do it. That's and, my I, and I'll tell you, if we reviewed this at the end of the season, the biggest factor in whether or not this happens is going to be how the offense changes with the quarterback change. And it, it could either go, it could go either way. Number one, I don't think Joe Milton will have the rushing yards and the rushing carries that Hendon Hooker had. So you could potentially have more yards go to the running backs. On the flip side of that, um, you're not going to have the threat of Hendon Hooker running as much. So a lot of the zone read stuff that opened up holes last year for the running backs isn't going to be as much of a threat, I think, this year with Joe Milton. Now, Joe Milton can run. If you remember the, the Bowling Green of the Pitt game one, uh, his first season, he broke off like a 70-yard run or something. So he can run when he gets going, and he can run over people. He's a he's a big guy. He's, he's, he's a fast, straight-line runner. But he's not an elusive runner like Hendon Hooker is. 
which is sort of what you want to have with zone read stuff. And so I don't think defenses are going to be as concerned with the threat of Joe Milton breaking off a run, and therefore I think that things will collapse more on the running backs. Uh, that's why I think they, they it'll be a little harder to come by with some of the yards. Not to mention, by the way, Darnell Wright's gone. Jerome Carvin's gone. That offensive line has some things to prove. And uh, for all those reasons, I, th- I think the running backs have a good year, but they they fall short of 1,000. You're thinking maybe 800, 900 range? Yeah, yeah. For, for, for both of them, maybe for three guys. Um, the, uh, this is going to probably be similar to sacks. I think the numbers as a team will be really good. The individuals maybe not as good. Okay, another one on on defense here. Aaron Beasley returns in the middle of this defense, but also Keenan Peely, the BYU transfer linebacker, will be helping form the middle of the defense. Uh, big addition for Tennessee, particularly with the exit of Jeremy Banks. So, fact or fiction, Keenan Peely will lead the team in tackles. Um, fiction, and I could almost talk myself out of this one, but um, if you look at the last two years in this defense, a linebacker will lead them in tackles. Uh, it was Jeremy Banks two years ago. It was Aaron Beasley last year. Aaron Beasley was second two years ago, so it's, it's probably going to be a linebacker. Um, I think it'll be Aaron Beasley. Um, now, which position he's playing, if he's playing uh, the strong side, which he has, I believe, for most of his career, um, or he's playing the weak side, which is what Jeremy Banks played, more of a playmaking type. Um, regardless of which one he is, I think Aaron Beasley is almost never going to leave the field on defense. I think he's going to have s- so many snaps that he's just going to lead in tackles one way or another. I think he's he's solid in the run game. He'll get him some TFLs. Um, he does make tackles downfield. Sometimes in coverage, sometimes blown coverages where he's chasing people, to be honest with you. Um, but Keenan Peely, I just have more questions about. Um, he produced at BYU. He did have some injuries that, that could leave that could, you know, keep him out of a couple of games. I don't know athletically as he, if he'll be as good in pass coverage. So he could be a situational guy where maybe they pull off the field on third down, didn't have the athleticism to, to cover. Not saying he will, but there's a question there. Um, and I think you could easily see some of his snaps be divided up with Elijah Herring. Arian Carter may get some snaps. So Aaron Beasley will have more snaps, be in more situations where he can make tackles. And at this point in this defense, he's a better player. So Aaron Beasley will lead them in in tackles, not Keenan Peely. I like that case. I will also say fiction as well. I think Peely is one of the biggest offseason additions. For Tennessee, sounds like we agree he's going to have a key role on the defense. But, boy, Beasley, I can't get um, the memories of what he did to Clemson. Uh, you know, I know it's been five, five, six months now, but you could make a case, and I think you did make the case that night, that Aaron Beasley was actually the MVP of that game. Joe Milton got the nod. I have no problem with that. I think I had a ballot that night, and I put Milton on my press box going with the quarterbacks, the easy answer, but Beasley was fantastic against Clemson finished his season the right way. And yeah, I guess if I were to have to pick someone rather than just take the field to lead the team in tackles, I think I would go with Beasley over Peely. Yeah. I remember that night on the MVP ballot. I remember I felt like a, uh, like I was voting for a third party candidate in a presidential <laughs> election, you know, sort of out of principle. Like I know this guy's not going to win, but I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this thing in of what I what I, what I really think. 
because uh, I turned in Beasley and I thought, yeah, but Joe Milton's going to win. And he's the he's the he's the quarterback that's the fill-in guy for the star and had a really good game. But yeah, in that game, I felt like Joe Milton uh, capitalized on the opportunities that Aaron Beasley and that defense gave him. And so that's why I thought Aaron Beasley was the MVP of that game. And that's why, he'll, for a number of reasons that I mentioned, he'll lead in tackles. Yeah, for the record, I would have had no real complaint or argument if Beasley was was the MVP. I When in doubt, I guess I just go with the quarterback. But that was a good choice, I, I think. All right, last one, Adam. No, Vols fans will be finding your email inbox, I'm sure, depending on how you, how you answer this one. We're going to close with big picture. Fact or fiction, the Vols will play in another New Year's Six Bowl to finish this season. And I'll throw in college football playoff. That still counts. New Year's Six slash college football playoff. If you got if you got Vols winning at all, that counts as fact to this prompt. So fact or fiction, they'll they'll finish the season in either the New Year's Six or the college football playoff. Uh, I'm going to go fiction, uh, but not by a wide margin. Um, I'll I, probably both of us will do our game by game picks for the season when we get closer to the season. But uh, the one that I've held on in the back of my mind since, well, for months now, is that Tennessee will go nine and three, and nine and three in the current bowl setup out of the SEC most likely gets you to the Citrus Bowl, which is one step below the near six or maybe even a half a step below. I, now, by the way, I think nine and three in the citrus bowl would be a very successful season considering what they're replacing. Um, now put this little caveat on there. There is a scenario where nine and three, you could end up in the cotton bowl, but they would take some things to happen in the sec and, and around them. And, and it was also depend on who they beat. Um, you know, if they got any upsets in there. Um, but no, I'm going to go, I'm going to go fiction because I think they fall a little too short. I think they'd lose to Georgia. I think they lose to Alabama and I think they lose one other game that would be hard to, to, to figure, you know, last, last year that was South Carolina. They should have won it. They didn't. Uh, I think they'll have a, a letdown in some games. They'll lose those other two games. And so they're nine and three, uh, going to the citrus bowl. Yeah. I wish for entertainment purposes, I could come up with something different here. If John were here, you know, he was, he was really bullish on Tennessee last season. He was right. He's been really high on Tennessee this offseason. He might say 11-1, and one and they're playing in the college football playoff if he hasn't been abducted by aliens at this point, which I haven't heard from him for a day or two, so it's possible one of them got him. But uh, if he was here, he'd go another direction. But I'm, I'm sharing your thinking, and I'm going with fiction. Tennessee will go 9-3. and three. They'll play in the Citrus Bowl. The Alabama game flipping onto the road could flip that result from last season like Georgia to win that head to head, even though Neyland stadium is going to be raucous when the Bulldogs come to town. And I just, I can't tell you what the third game is that I think Tennessee will lose. I just share your thinking that they're going to stub their toe somewhere. Maybe it's A&M at home. Maybe it's Florida on the road. Maybe it's um, Spencer Rattler lights them up again this time in Knoxville. I think somewhere along the way, Tennessee's offense Maybe scores a lot of points, but it just doesn't quite have the firepower to cover up a bad defensive performance, a la what we saw in Columbia, South Carolina last year. So I, I agree, nine and three, and I, they play in the Citrus Bowl. I think this is a good follow up to that since we both agree. I like to, I always hope to get my picks within one game, plus or minus. So 
Josh Apple's first year, I picked Tennessee seven and five in the regular season. They went seven and five. Felt good about that. Last year, I picked eight and four, and they went ten and two in the regular season. So I I was off two. I don't I don't like to do that. I like to get within one. If we're both saying nine and three, so let's go one up and one down. Uh, the over under there. If I if I told you they're going to be either one better or one worse, is it more likely Tennessee goes ten and two or eight and four this year? I'd take eight and four because I, I the way I look at it, they're they're starting the season very likely with two losses. I just the Alabama game being on the road and and Georgia is probably going to be number one or number two in the country when they come to town. So they start with two losses in my mind, realistically, miracles can happen, what have you. So yeah, I just, I think it's probably a a better chance that they stub their toe at least once, maybe twice against somebody. I don't know if they did enough in the back end of that defense to make me feel confident the defense can go out there and beat good opponents for them. I think, I think Tennessee's defense will be fine to beat the bad opponents. The offense is, is going to score points. We know that, but yeah, I would say eight and four is more likely than eight and two or than, than 10 and two. See, now I cheated a little bit because I didn't have an answer. I want to see what this <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, but because it's if, if you go eight and four, you have to, you, at that point, you kind of have to count the losses. And the two that I mentioned, Alabama, Georgia, um, going to the swamp, I could see a loss there. Okay, so that means they got to lose to A&M at home. Would they lose both of those? That's hard to say. I don't see them losing to South Carolina. I just don't. That's... It's a circled game that's at home. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I just don't see that happening. So um, if if they're not losing to both Florida and A&M, that means they got to lose to Missouri. That ain't happening. They got to lose to Vanderbilt. That ain't happening. Where they lose to Kentucky, I'm not I'm not buying that. So I'm I'm honestly waffling because uh, I, I don't I don't know which one. I, I would at this point I would maybe lean more toward. 10 and two, probably than eight and four. I think I'm talking myself into that nine and three is still my, my mark, but I think 10 and two seems more, more probable to me than eight and four. I, th- I think what this exercise has done is made me even more confident in my nine and three, because yes, yeah. it is a struggle. If you say, okay, who's the four they're going to lose to. I have a little harder time getting there. Um, I don't feel though any conviction in saying 10 and two either. So I feel a lot of conviction in that nine and three number. If I had to spit out four, if I, if you said they go eight and four, who do they lose to? I would say Alabama, Georgia, Texas A&M at home and the swamp gets the best of them. Even though I don't think Florida is going to be uh, very impressive this year. I'll say the, the magic of the swamp, which is given Tennessee fits going back. Eight. Now we can make that make that plural um, that uh, that the swamp gets the best of, of Tennessee again. And that's that's where they lose. They lose, you know, to an inferior Gator team. I don't think that's going to happen. I think Tennessee gets to nine and three. But if I were to add to spit out four opponents they lose to and they get to eight and four, I would I guess I'd put Florida on the list. Yeah. Yeah. I think they would have to again. And that goes back to the question of the most important game, because if you beat Florida, as long as you don't get tripped up by uh, UT San Antonio, which, by the way, may be a ranked team, but uh, you're four and zero, and if you're four and zero, you much better chance you're going at least nine and three because you do have some more built-in wins on down the road. But so I think we talked ourselves both into and out of things. But nine and three, I, I feel much better about too. 
Right, we are going to take next week off from the podcast. We will be back with you the week after that, leading into SEC Media Days. John Adams, we presume, will be back among us normal people and not with the little green creatures, we hope. Thanks for listening to us on this edition of the Volunteer State.